Welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Joe Barrett. Reading University is one of four UK venues that is opening its doors today as part of Researchers' Night, a Europe-wide event which invites the public to learn about the work of an academic researcher at a number of free talks and workshops designed to appeal to a general audience. The day offers visitors to the university a chance to meet and ask questions of professional researchers working in an academic environment and learn about the often surprising diversity of work they are involved in. The event is organised with support from the European Union. Sandro Ricci, Deputy Head of the Unit Responsible for Researchers' Night, explains some of its aims and how it hopes to boost people's interest in research. Researchers' Night is something uh, really peculiar because at this time it's not an action that directly uh, provide financing to research or to carry out research, but it is more an action to create awareness about what research is, how research could be interesting, how research is in the life of every day and of everyone. So it is an action addressed to the public as a whole, mainly to young people, because they will be the researcher in, in, in the future. And this address also to those people who is reluctant to take contact with the science matters and they can be involved through this kind of initiative. So initiative where there is fun, there are conversation, everything is done in, in a relaxed environment. So it's a way to make the people near to research. Reading is not the only event that's happening today, there are other events happening. Yes, there are. Uh, this event is, is carried out in this moment in all the European countries plus several associated countries. In the UK there are other events, there is another one in London at the National History Museum. So it's, uh, it's an action that has provided very good results. Just to let you know, in the five years that this action has been carried out, since 2006, 1,700,000 people were involved, were attendees that were to the researchers' night. And I think it's a very good result. And then there is also mobilization of resources because uh, the EU is financing only part of these activities. All the other parts are financed directly by the institution involved. So the uh, EU is working as a sort of catalyst just to uh, increase the awareness of people about research, university, research center, and mainly on the on a career in research that should be an attractive one. It is an attractive one. Professor Peter Kruschwitz is head of the Classics Department at Reading. He feels that people do have an understanding of the work academics do. For him, Researchers' Night is as much about communicating the ways in which this work affects people in their day-to-day -day lives. I think if people take their time, they tend to understand why academics in, in the arts and humanities are doing what they do. I think what, what is more worrying sometimes is looking at um, immediate reflexes and, and responses you, you sometimes find in, um, in newspapers and in um, sort of letters to the, to the editors and in um, online fora and all, all this kind of stuff where people feel like, okay, these um, people do at university that um, has very little impact on their um, daily lives. But I think the way we do things here at Reading across all the disciplines involved actually has a lot to contribute to 
public debate to ongoing current issues. So to, to give you one example, just recently David Cameron said that um, people who do not learn English um, and are not up to scratch with um, their their language skills may face a situation in which they have their benefits cut or um, sort of at least reduced. And um, I mean, that, that applies not only to migrants, but applies to um, sort of the traditional English um, British population. And I think it, it is important for academics. I mean, one thing is to, to blame the public and say, well, you simply don't understand <laughs> what we do. But I don't think it's, it's fair. I think there's a huge responsibility with the academics to explain explain what they're doing, to explain what they are doing, why they're doing it, why they're doing it in this specific way, and um, what impact it can have on public life, on public debate. And in that respect, Researchers' Night, I think, is, is a fantastic opportunity for us to open our doors and to invite the public to let them participate and let them understand, let them engage with um, what it is that we academics do in a fantastic variety of, of departments. The importance of language is something which is perhaps hard to overestimate. Whoever wants to understand the problems of the past, the present and the future will also have to look at the ways in which language is used and thought about within a society. Reading has long been a centre for traditional and non-traditional language research, and its profile in this area has been boosted by its decision last year to launch a faculty research theme of language, text and power. The diverse range of talks and workshops on offer today all relate to this theme in some respect, something which really highlights the significance of this area of study. Professor Kruschwitz also heads up the research theme. Language, Text and Power theme came about as a research initiative in the Classics department because we felt that quite a few colleagues in Classics were doing research that sort of was looking at language in quite an unusual way. So you would expect in a classics department people to read Virgil and Homer, and obviously that's what we do. Uh, but on the other hand, um, quite a few of us are looking at language and texts in unusual ways um, that you might not find in other classics departments. It then turned out um, when we started talking to, to colleagues in neighboring departments in, in our faculty, that uh, this actually would help us quite a lot to tap into faculty-wide resources and to create a significant amount of synergies between departments. So, I mean, obviously modern languages and English and applied linguistics are natural partners for that, um, to, to look um, at language use and how power relationships are negotiated through language. How do you speak to someone who's a superior? How do you speak to um, someone who's of different age, gender, um, standing in the, in, in the social hierarchy? But interestingly enough, at Reading, there are so many different approaches, even in uh, departments where you might find that's that's not a traditional way of, of doing this. So history springs to mind, not only because they look at the speeches of Hitler and Stalin and sort of <laughs> are interested in the in the rhetoric but from um, looking at medieval texts or instance of magic and witchcraft I mean all this has to do with languages and with power reading is is particularly um, well known for an exciting outstanding typography department where we look at the design of texts and um, the design of uh, 
font types and all, all these um, sort of things. So um, in, in a way, we could synergize and um, sort of do even more exciting things using that um, label, language, text, and power to, to um, further collaborations across disciplines and to, to engage in collaborative, um, competitive research. In an average day, we will end up reading thousands of individual words, but how often do we stop to think about these letters which make up a text and the thought that goes into what they look like? Jerry Leonidas is a senior lecturer in the typography department at Reading. He explains how studying 300-year-old Greek translations can help the designers of our phones and laptops today. Standards develop very gradually. There's a very um, measured process of evolution in typography of complex texts, so things tend to look very similar. And if you go all the way to the 19th century, then you will look at things that seem very familiar to us today. We can read these books quite well. The typographic conventions have survived throughout the decades very well. You don't change things when the users need to get to grips with the text unless there's a good reason. So these models actually are very good guides for how people respond to the texts. They help us understand how we use the text and what the demands on the text are. So the industry is shifting quite a lot and they're trying to see how can we actually build some that works in this very different environment but actually capitalize on the experience of the previous centuries. And this is where we come in because we're beginning to do two things. One is have a look at the range of uses that people have put the text in the past. The second is try to map this onto contemporary uses because you might have your dictionaries but you get what newspapers are turning into now, which might be lifestyle editions or magazines that will have two or three languages in, depending on the region. We might get localized editions of publications. This is a condition in the design world that didn't exist 20 years ago. But if you go to McDonald's in Egypt, the menu will look like the McDonald's you used to around here, and somebody needs to make sure that this uh, text works side by side. Or if you go to the Olympic Games, then there will be four or five different versions of this in languages that need to sort of fit on the same document and work with each other. So there's a range of conditions that are new now for designers that did not exist anymore. Things like this. Pretty much everybody will have a thing that has a browser on. Now the interesting is that the problems of designing for this are not that new because we had small things before. This is the iPhone of the itinerant uh, Dutch scholar. Uh, this is from 1707. When this comes up, look at how small the text is and how actually readable it is. Now imagine this is for a time when people didn't have very good lighting. Their specs were ground by hand uh, on stones, not very good, and yet still it works. But the basic conditions of arranging the text on a very small format survive. And we can use this 300 years later. So the lessons from this somehow translate to my iPhone screen. Lip Taylor is professor of theater and performance in the department of film, theater, and television. Here, she explains her research into verbatim theater and how she hopes the workshop she has planned for A-level students will help them think about language, power, and specifically the theatrical text in new ways. We had a research project in the department which looked at documentary theatre and one of the areas that we were particularly interested in was verbatim theatre. 
uh, verbatim theatre uh, is quite difficult to de define and there are uh, several ways of uh, talking about the kind of theatre it produces. Basically, theatre that uses the words of real people in the performance text. Now, those words are used in different ways according to particular kinds of writers. Um, some people use those words uh, of real people absolutely straight, and some people will edit them to some degree or another. Uh, some of the uh, verbatim pieces which people might be very familiar with uh, are the, work, uh, the work, works that come out of the Tricycle Theatre, where they've done um, a series of plays over the last ten years or so called Tribunal Theatre, where they uh, reconstruct in an edited form tribunals that have occurred public tribunals that have occurred where the uh, material that was produced at the, at the tribunal um, becomes the material of the performance. Um, the trial of Stephen Lawrence was one. Another form of verbatim theatre is the work of Alecky Blythe. That's work that I have been particularly interested in recently and the work that I aim to use as part of the workshop. Alecky Blythe most recently has written a play uh, for the National Theatre called London Road based on the Ipswich murders. And uh, that has been very successful. So that has uh, brought her work to the fore. She has a very, very particular approach to verbatim, which, um, as far as I understand it, Alecky um, has developed after um, attending um, a workshop uh, which was based on the work originally of an American writer, uh, Anna Devere Smith. This work involves recording uh, the, the words of people via an electronic source of some kind, digital or um, tape of some kind. The text is produced by editing the words of these people into some kind of coherent um, form. It might be a narrative form. It might be much more of a collage of voices. Possibly the one that she would say was her first performance was based around the Hackney Siege and um, was called Come Out Eli. And uh, Alecky was very interested in recording the words of the people who were watching the siege and... Who, uh, in the area where the siege was taking place. And so the play comprises a lot of characters, so each actor plays a lot of characters, but the, their, their words are produced from the real words of the people who were watching the siege. But she works by literally editing the sound material. She doesn't actually write the text into a written form until it's required for publication. So it it seems to me that this is the it's kind of the perfect thing to be on today's event, which is Researchers' Night, um, which is about people doing research and then how it's more accessible. And this seems like a form of theatre which is based in that type of research more than more than other. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? I think the form of of, of theatre that it is is one that is very interesting for young people who might be very keen 
to develop some of their own performances, maybe using this form or something close to this form. So the workshop would bring together a group of people um, to work on material that I prepared around ordinary everyday speech so that um, uh, using everyday conversations or uh, dialogue, the, the um, participants um, are intended to produce theatrical work from that material. Now, the way Alaki Blythe works is that her actors wear earphones, or at least, shall we say, the way she works in most of her performances. The actors wear earphones during the rehearsals and indeed during the performances so that instead of apparently learning the lines that they speak, they are listening to the words of the person on, who's their, on whom their character is based all the way through the performance and reconstructing um, or, or, or imitating what they say with every single um, ah, cough, uh, inflection. They're trying to um, imitate the intonation. Um, uh, that's a really very difficult thing to do and something very unfamiliar for most actors. It's, a, it's a, quite a challenging way of uh, producing a theatre text and also of producing a performance because we talk a lot about performances coming from inside the actor but this is them listening to something from outside which then they have to absorb very quickly and produce their own version of it very quickly. I've talked to various actors who've worked with uh, Alaki Blythe in this system um, and they're largely very, very enthusiastic about it and enjoy the challenge. And also, they, they talk about the way in which, even though they say the words many, many times during rehearsals and performances, in fact, they don't know. Uh, recorded material wasn't available for them to listen to, that they would get lost in the text. And I find that quite difficult to understand, but I believe them. And I think the young people in a, a workshop could very usefully try this experience of listening and repeating and um, uh, trying to get every nuanced sound, but also um, of, of presenting that as a performance, so not just speaking it, but also incorporating that into a performance. So I think that for young people who are learning about theatre, finding out about this uh, method of producing, uh, if you like, realistic kinds of performances, participating in a workshop is as interesting or another interesting way of uh, following the performance as well as going to see it. So if they went to see something like the girlfriend experience, actually tried uh, the process themselves, they would begin to understand in a different way uh, the way the, um, the text has been produced. It's in a way easy to look at a written text and analyse it. I mean, that's, that's one thing. But to um, understand how theatre works, in many ways you have to do it. And this would allow young people to be involved in making the theatre as well. Finally, I spoke to Dr Matthew Nichols of the Classics Department. In his work, he recreates 3D models of buildings and cities to help us understand what the ancient world may have looked and felt like. 
He painstakingly reconstructs each building from the available archaeological and literary evidence, yet again showing us the way in which language can be used in ways which may surprise us. The talk I've just given was called A Researcher's Voyage. Uh, that was the title they, they gave me to work with, and I thought the interesting way to tackle that would be to go in two different directions. One is the places I've been to around the Roman Empire, because I've travelled pretty widely across the span of territory that was once held by Rome, from Hadrian's Wall last week to Turkey next week and places in between. Uh, so to look at that, and not just to show my holiday photos, but to talk about what you notice as you go around such a large empire, which is a surprising strand of continuity, amid diversity, sure, but with recognisable building types and functions and places, temples, bathhouses, theatres, you know, from one end of the empire to another. And some of the reasons why that might be, the hand of the army, the role of locals in imitating and emulating Rome in their own struggle for local prominence or, or prestige. The second kind of voyage I wanted to talk about was how we get back in time and go from ruins in these places, very impressive ruins, but still ruins, to real working buildings as they appeared when they were new and how we can envisage a bit about how these buildings functioned, what impression they made uh, back when they were brand new. And one of the ways I do this um, is through digital architectural modelling. So I, I make 3D images in my computer of these buildings as I envisage them. And I'm now working on a model of the entire city of Rome, which is coming towards completion. And we uh, had a fly down through that and a look at some of the buildings in the streets of Rome to finish off. Um, great. This uh, Today, Researchers' Night, is a lot about telling people outside the academic world what it is that researchers do. Um, I think your work's very, very good at doing that. It's got kind of lots of applications. Would you like to maybe talk, talk about that and how it could be, how it could be more accessible? Yes, I, I do think this is something that can be used to um, let people outside the academy know what it is we do and also to help share our findings and our expertise in the Roman world, the ancient world, with people who are interested in it. And the really nice thing is that uh, we know people are fascinated by the ancient world. You know, All the time people are going on holiday to these places, they're buying the guidebooks, they're watching the films like Gladiator, our own undergraduate recruitment is very, very healthy because people are just fascinated by the ancient past. So I like to help bring that to life and share it. The uh, digital modelling is a really good, vivid way of doing it because it produces, um, you know, quite pretty, though I say so myself, quite pretty visuals that you can put up on the screen, you can see how it looked, and people can get it immediately. And if you look at a pile of ruins or an architect's drawing, it can be a little hard sometimes to work out what that really looked like. But when you see the whole city there in, in, in bright colours and 3D, you can fly through it, you can get down to street level. People really enjoy that. So I take this a lot to schools. I do talks in schools for them in museums. Uh, I lecture sometimes on cruise ships, which I have to say is rather fun. And I uh, I take this uh, along and I write talk, you know, depending what the subject is they've asked for or where we're going, we can do entertainment architecture in Rome, we can do the architecture of power in Rome and Roman Empire, whatever it might be. So these talks really, really go over nicely. And I'm, as the model of Rome starts to come towards fruition now, I've started talking to commercial firms who might help me to... Um, make something of it on a, a much wider scale. I, I won a little prize in a, a regional academic entrepreneurship contest recently that was encouraging a sort of proposing business plan by which I might make something of this. I've started talking to some software companies. I'd like to talk more to publishers and see if we can get a guidebook, for example, out of this. And then I think it would hopefully be in the hands of, I, I would hope, lots and lots of people um, being able to take it to Rome and use it to, to see their way around the, the modern city as tourists or in the classroom as students and pupils. Researchers' Night culminated in a debate which brought together many of the ideas connected to the day's theme of language, text and power 
and asks the question, how many languages can we afford to speak in today's society? This debate is available to hear in full on the Pod Academy website. <laughs>